0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. How to safeguard ourselves from deliberate efforts to spread false information. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. We live in the age of disinformation, propaganda that's intended to mislead. It takes the form of unfounded rumors, outright hoaxes, and kooky conspiracy theories, may reinforce our own fears and biases, but bear little relation to reality. And sometimes it's a highly organized cyber assault.
1: The defendants allegedly conducted what they called information warfare against the United States with the stated goal of spreading distrust towards the candidates and the political system in general.
0: Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in February 2018. He detailed a federal indictment charging criminal interference in the 2016 presidential election. The indictment was brought against members of the Internet Research Agency, a shadowy firm with ties to the Kremlin based in St. Petersburg, Russia.
1: Internet Research Agency allegedly operated through Russian shell companies. It employed hundreds of people and arranged into departments, including graphics, search engine optimization, Information Technology and Finance Departments.
0: So with bad actors out there, the average person wonders about a simple question. What information can we trust? And it turns out the answer is a little complicated. Joanna Burkhardt, a librarian at the University of Rhode Island, wrote Protect Yourself from Fake News, a poster published by the American Library Association. It offers tips to help information consumers separate fact from fiction.
2: The amount of fake news that appears to be out there is kind of clogging up our information highway. So I thought it was important to help people understand what they needed to do in order to avoid the fake news and find valid news.
0: Is there a traffic jam on the information highway?
2: Well, there is. The uh, amount of information that's available via the Internet, via social media, is enormous. And it comes at us 24-7 like out of a fire hose. It's very, very difficult to select any information because there's so much of it. Um, So when you consider the... The amount of information there is and the amount of time it takes to evaluate information on a regular basis, people often don't have time to really think about selecting the best source they can. So they select the first source that comes up, which is not necessarily True information or valid information or information from an expert.
0: What do you think are the greatest obstacles to people developing information literacy? of the kind that is required in the 21st century?
2: I think the biggest obstacle is speed. Most of the uh, young people, anyway, are used to having things be instantaneous, and they don't really wait. They don't want to spend the time that it takes to vet a source or to find out what an author knows about a topic. Information is a slow process, And it needs to be slowed down in order to select and use the best information. So I think the speed of how information comes at us and how we send it out again needs, it's a critical problem that needs to be addressed.
0: One wildly popular resource faces an ongoing challenge of evaluating the reliability of information. It's the free online encyclopedia known as Wikipedia. It's viewed more than 20 billion times a month. It has published 50 million articles and works with over 250,000 editors. Wikipedia is operated by the nonprofit Wikimedia Foundation based in San Francisco. Catherine Marr is the CEO.
3: We always encourage people to be critical readers. It doesn't mean that Wikipedia is 100% accurate. Uh, But we always say, you know, you should check the citations. You should read with a critical eye. You should ask yourself, where does this information come from? And why is it here? And that's not just a skill for Wikipedia. That's actually a skill for life. You know, it's the case that even our most trusted sort of media institutions and um, publications of high repute sometimes get it wrong. They issue corrections, they issue second editions with updated, you know, forwards. It, it's the case that knowledge is constantly in flux and constantly being built and developed. Our understanding of the world from a scientific perspective is perpetually evolving, from a medical perspective, uh, from a historical perspective, as we look at who has been accounted for and who has been left out. So we encourage uh, that everybody, you know, starts from the basis of saying, you know, this information is probably pretty good, but what what do I need to be aware of when I when I read through? And you can start to to distinguish relatively quickly when something has is incomplete or is potentially biased. You can look at the quality of uh, how many adjectives are used to describe something.
0: Are more adjectives better or worse?
3: Well, in Wikipedia, what we often look at is when people use superlatives to describe issues, Very frequently, that indicates that sort of a lack of neutrality relative to the quality of the article overall. So I'm talking to you from San Francisco. If the Wikipedia article were to say San Francisco is the best city in California, we would say that, well, that's not really neutral. So what are the the facts that would underlie that assertion? And so sometimes when we're looking at the quality of an article, what we're often looking at is what are the words that people are using to describe the circumstances versus the evidence that they're able to bring in in order to. To support that assertion. So when we look at what constitutes a reliable source for Wikipedia, we say, well, what's the process of review that it goes through? Is there peer review? Is there some sort of editorial process? Is this a source that issues corrections if it gets things wrong? Does it follow up and do that due diligence and have that cycle of accountability with its readers? Uh, is it respected in its field? Does Is this something that has... Uh, garnered widespread support within sort of the sector which it represents. And as we look at all those different factors, that starts to provide more of a map as to how you might evaluate information, where it comes from, who's publishing it, and in whose interest is it that it is being distributed.
0: And does Wikipedia use some algorithm that evaluates that?
3: So we are experimenting with whether we can start to assign... Credibility to sources. It is possible to start modeling what that might look like using uh, machine learning algorithms that say that, for example, can look at the frequency of citations back to a journal article. So there is a way in which academics assess the influence of a paper that has been published by looking at how many other papers cite that paper. So if you write a paper A, and then there are, uh, are 100 papers that reference paper A, that is considered a more influential paper than if only 10 papers reference it.
0: Catherine is quick to point out that because something has been widely cited doesn't confirm its accuracy, it may be trendy just because it's interesting or that it happens to be newsworthy at a particular moment or that it's exciting. If the article remains popular over time, she says, that may indicate its lasting impact. But when we look something up online, there's another potential pitfall, says librarian Joanna Burkhart.
2: We tend to get caught up into our own little information bubbles, especially with predictive searching, so that we only get information that uh, reinforces what we already know and like.
0: What is predictive searching?
2: Predictive searching is like what happens on Netflix. You you watch this particular program, so we're going to select... 12 more programs in that same genre that you might like.
0: So it's not a search that you initiate. It is suggestions made by the vendor.
2: Yes, and it happens in, in Google searching. It happens when you go to Amazon to pick a book or a sweater or whatever it happens to be. There's all this predictive searching.
0: So to promote products, some websites feed us a menu of options we might like. Different users, based on their individual history, which is tracked, may get a customized menu. But the effect of this is to highlight certain options and to exclude others. And that may cause us to narrow our sense of what's possible.
2: The predictive searching puts us into an information bubble where eventually we start to think that there isn't anything else out there. that Everybody agrees with what we agree with. Everybody buys what we buy. Everybody likes the books that we like. And we forget that there are other things
0: outside this predictive bubble. And when it comes to search engines like Google, a particular search result may index the Internet's content in a manner that skews according to a particular viewpoint, but doesn't reflect what might be regarded as unbiased information.
2: We can't really know what what criteria it's using to c- collect those sites and put... So that's the first step, is that the information that you get on the first page, which is the only information you're going to look at, is we don't know where it came from. We don't know how it came to us. We don't know why it's at the top of the list. And it's not necessarily because it's the best information. If you're using your home computer... Google already knows the stuff that you like and what you look for on a regular basis, and that's different from what I would look for, so our results are going to be different as well.
0: Thus, being a savvy consumer of digital information means keeping in mind that the disseminators operate with an agenda and often an elaborate business structure that may distort the content you receive. Again, University of Rhode Island librarian Joanna Burkhart.
2: To know who is providing the information. And if you don't know who's providing the information, to find out. To fact-check the information that you're receiving to make sure that it is reliable. And there are lots of fact-checking sites available that will help you do that.
0: Can you recommend a couple?
2: Uh, Snopes is one that I... Snopes.com... And uh, factcheck.org is another. Um, there, there are multiple fact-checking organizations out there.
0: And how reliable are they?
2: They're really pretty good. Um, Snopes is m- my go-to site, and they will s- show you when the information first appeared, and they will cite uh, other sources of information that will either confirm the, the original piece, or they will um, refute it.
0: We're examining the challenge of digital literacy at a time when the velocity of information bombarding us requires careful attention to the skills of critical thinking. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, part of our project Libraries Reimagined, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. The Digital Public Library of America an extraordinary project founded in 2010 with the expectation that more and more knowledge will be produced, shared, and consumed digitally. It connects libraries, museums, and civic institutions around the United States. The DPLA is an online network with a combined collection containing more than 36 million items. This includes over 6,000 free e-book titles. The executive director is John Bracken.
1: Around the time that we were founded as an organization, I, in my previous job, gave an award on behalf of a journalism organization to one of the co-founders of Twitter for the role of Twitter in the Arab Spring. We were celebrating as a society. These, you know, you, you saw the the marchers in Cairo holding up signs that said Facebook, social media, and these. The digital possibilities of these amazing platforms that were emerging out was part of this set of dialogue we're having about people's revolutions and overthrowing authoritarianism and connecting people to people across the world in whole new ways.
0: Yet in the decades since, that authentic optimism has been dampened. Advocates of a utopia of freely flowing knowledge have been chastened by the emergence of trends like cyberbullying and internet addiction and Russian use of social media to twist American presidential elections.
1: We're having a much different set of conversations, right? We're looking at and thinking very critically. The headline every day is about the ways in which these tools have actively been weaponized to undermine democracy. That doesn't mean that the possibilities and the excitement we had about what digital could enable for humankind were wrong. But it
0: suggests that this technology has come on so rapidly and so forcefully that it may have outpaced the development of our personal skills to handle it. And make no mistake, these new tools do require fresh approaches to
1: managing the torrent of information coursing into our lives. The lessons that a lot of us have taken away, and this is where I think libraries are just so key And what we're trying to help germinate with the Digital Public Library of America, is taking the resources and the professional practices that we have honed over decades and centuries in the curation of information, in the uh, creating a space for people to come and engage with knowledge in ways appropriate for where they are, um, and for helping to promote dialogue about the state of society, that those practices that libraries and librarians have developed, are more important than ever now as we try to figure this all out.
0: One thing I've wondered about is the effects of online education, especially for young learners. When the coronavirus pandemic surfaced and schools across the United States suspended classes, many shifted to virtual learning. But does something get sacrificed when face-to-face engagement between teacher and student is replaced?
1: We know that the values of each are different and complementary, and we don't need to live in an either-or world.
0: Again, John Bracken.
1: I say that partly as a parent of a, a nine-and-a-half-year-old who's in a, a passionate reader, and both loves to engage with digital materials and digital text, and lo- you know has a stuffed backpack full of six or seven hardcover books because she loves books.
0: And young people coming of age today will have to wrestle with all the complexities and conflicts of the digital age they've been born into.
1: But I still remain, re- you know, fundamentally optimistic that these are a set of tools that if we use the right way and in the right context, are going to unleash greater creativity and spread knowledge more, more than we would have had. I mean, the, the possibilities inherent in digital are still so important and so huge that often I think we're at a moment in time where we're focusing on the negative to the point where we're losing track of what the potentials are.
0: What seems certain is that digital technologies are here to stay. The impact of the cyber revolution in recent decades is far-reaching, and for all its benefits, also carries unintended consequences. And, says John Bracken of the Digital Public Library of America, the stakes are high. I think it's
1: important to recognize that we're living in odd times, that we're actually having, on a fairly regular, routine basis, conversations about, you know, will the American experiment with democracy survive? Um... You know, that that, has, that doesn't happen with a great regularity over the course of American history. Um, and I think that this set of civic institutions that we have that, again, that are distributed across the U.S., that are in every neighborhood in the U.S., that are staffed by professionals who are trained in uh, the provision of information that people need um, and and that these spaces are designed to be open for anyone to engage with. I just think that's such a valuable resource at this time of distrust, of discord, of disintermediation.
0: When infections from the COVID-19 coronavirus began to multiply in early 2020, the internet allowed public libraries to remain accessible. Their physical doors were generally shuttered to protect the public, but their websites were humming, a way for patrons cooped up at home to retrieve a wealth of online resources, from popular magazines to movies to electronic books. It's a reminder of the function of public libraries in our communities. Catherine Marr of Wikipedia.
3: we have an institution that is trusted, already it has an advantage in terms of being a guide or helping us navigate the information landscape. What I think that the role of libraries can be is really around having conversations with communities, not about what to think, but about how to think and how to navigate what information is put in front of us. Libraries are not going to solve the challenges of social media proliferation of misinformation. They are not going to solve the challenges of uh, public figures providing bad information. What they can do is that they can work within their communities to offer ways to encourage people to think critically because they already start from a position of trust. People will walk in and understand that a library is not there to tell them what to think. It's there to work, to to support them in how they learn to think.
0: Which includes media literacy skills, Brian Bannon directs the New York City Public Library and is president of the Digital Public Library of America
4: the libraries play a role and we are playing a role in helping people better understand um, how they're getting information where they get their information how to evaluate whether or not the source is a reliable one and if they're doing you know if they're getting a large part of their information in you know these new social media environment not new some more Facebook Instagram Twitter these other places how do we help them better detect uh, when the likelihood of the information they're getting or the source information that they're getting isn't isn't a good one.
0: The age-old proverb, let the buyer beware, applies not just to the retail environment, but to our digital lives as well. We're all vulnerable to con artists, now armed with powerful new tools of fabrication.
4: This idea of media literacy isn't a new one. Um, uh, It perhaps is more important today, given the fact that we're getting our information from lots of different sources, and there's a a, a less of a curated process of of fact-checking. But it's been an important element of our democracy for a long time, and we have an important role to play.
3: Librarians have an incredibly important curatorial role in terms of putting forward information that challenges us and asks us to look at differing perspectives.
0: Catherine Marr.
3: I think that the ability of a library to put the information that that asks us to go beyond sort of the superficial discourse of the day uh, by putting longer form resources in front of people, by putting competing ideas in terms of the the book selections that are are being displayed to the public or the information selections, the, these are all ways in which librarians ask us to sort of challenge what it is that we think about when we go. Um, in, into a library or into a space.
0: By seeing the variety of works available, patrons may discover new ideas to consider. Traditionally, libraries offer these selections while respecting the right of individuals to make their own decisions privately. And Catherine Marr tries to carry that principle into her work at Wikipedia.
3: I'm actually from the state of Connecticut, and, and I'm always very proud uh, to be from the state of Connecticut because it was the Connecticut state librarians who were the first to challenge um, something known as a national security letter in the aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. government was issuing these national security letters. They were asking libraries to share information about what their patrons were looking up. And when these national security letters were issued, they were issued within a presumptive gag order. So as soon as you received one, you couldn't disclose that you had received it, not even in theory to your own lawyers. Well, the Connecticut state librarians were the first to publicly and successfully challenge the national security letter practice. And in fact, the result of that was, was that the practice of using that was dropped. It was no longer considered a viable instrument. You know, that's the lengths to which librarians go to protect the freedom of inquiry of individuals.
0: Well, the moral of that story is clearly don't tangle with Connecticut librarians.
3: Well, I think just don't tangle with librarians, period. You're listening
0: to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from Jake Kavicki, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Doug Sugart, Steve Martin, Laura Carlo, David Cruz, Miles Blackwood-Robinson, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To
2: download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. And you can purchase a CD copy of this program by phone. Please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org.
0: And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part of our project, Libraries Reimagined, Is Humankind program number 279? The executive producer
2: is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.